Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 139 with Cody Marwine of The Perfect Truffle. Percentages of cocoa, they're all a sham that the media and chocolate companies have brainwashed into people that they actually mean stuff. The only thing that the percentage of cocoa can really tell you is like, almost like if it's dark chocolate, really the sugar content of the chocolate, like a 70% dark chocolate is going to have 30% sugar in it roughly. But that's really the only thing it's going to really be to tell you how sweet it is, I guess you could say, because the other 70% can be anything that a cocoa bean comprises of. So basically cocoa powder, cocoa butter, or them combined together as cocoa mass. So essentially I could take an entire block of cocoa butter and hand it to you and say, this is a hundred percent cacao because it is, it's just all cocoa butter, which you don't want to eat. So it's hard to say what the percentage that's best is. Yes. If you get an 85% or hundred percent, yes, it's inherently going to be more dark slash maybe a little bitterness to it, a little like tannicness to it, but not, it's not going to be bad if it's good chocolate. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. I hope everyone's having a good week so far. I have a bit of an allergy thing going on, so forgive my nasally monologue here. I'll try to make it brief. This week, my guest is Cody Marwine of The Perfect Truffle, a chocolate shop he owns in downtown Frederick, Maryland. I have the benefit of living a mile away, so I've had many of the delicious chocolates from his shop. You might have heard my mini-episode with him a couple months ago about what it means to be a chef. That was a segment that I pulled out of this discussion. We talk about how he ended up taking over the chocolate shop that he'd been working at on and off for almost a decade. We discuss chocolate percentages, supply chain issues, tempering chocolate, and how to work with it at home. We also talk about vanilla and how it's kind of underrated. Actually, I'd never really given vanilla much thought myself. So if you love chocolate or even vanilla and want to pick up on some tips and tricks on how to buy, use, and store chocolate, this is the episode for you. As always, I'd love it if you shared this with people who you think might appreciate it. And the episode will be coming right up after a word from this week's sponsor. The COVID pandemic has clearly redefined the world of dining. Despite over 110,000 restaurants closing around the country, people still want the ambiance and social connectivity that is so critical to the dining experience. Over the past 27 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it provided an avenue for personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. 
representing nearly a thousand chefs around the U.S. and Canada, and even Italy, USPCA provides a strategic backbone for those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. One of the big upcoming events for USPCA is their annual conference scheduled July 7th to 10th at the Hyatt Regency in Sarasota, Florida. Featuring a host of speakers and classes, the conference is a way for chefs to hone their skills and network with like-minded business people. For those who supply the industry, it's a chance to reach not just the decision makers, but the actual buyers of products. This will be their first time back following the COVID lockdowns, and chefs are anxious to connect. For more info about the USPCA, how to join, and how to attend their conference, go to USPCA.com. As always, all the info will be linked up in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Hey, Cody, how's it going? Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to talking to you about all things chocolate and maybe a little more. Wonderful. Looking forward to speaking with you. So let's kind of start this off with a little bit of your background. I love to give a little context to our listeners. So right now you own a chocolate shop, but you've done many other things in the food world. So how did you get started in food and cooking? So I originally, I grew up around food for mostly my grandfather really exposed me to a lot of different foods um, on the savory side. And my mom and grandmother always were baking, but I enjoyed cooking savory food. That was actually my first job over at Searsville Mansion, because unfortunately that was the only place that would give me a job that wasn't fast food. Um, And I was trying to go something that wasn't just fast food. After that point, I went to CIA or Co-Institute of America for college. And I jumped into baking and pastry because for me, it's science-based. You do one thing, you get one thing, you mess up that thing, and you end up with a bad product. It's kind of very easy to tell sometimes what you did wrong. And for me, savory cooking was a lot more chaotic, at least how I looked at it. It was before everyone started delving into the more science-based cooking, I guess you could say. And then while I was... I guess it was in high school or kind of early college. My little brother had found that at the chocolate shop that I worked for after college, which was perfect truffle, which is what I now own. So he showed me pictures of this place and I was like, well, that's a pretty awesome place. I didn't know existed. I thought it was in DC. Lo and behold, it was tucked back behind Talbot's and Chabro. And I just always kind of went in, talked with Randy, the original owner whenever I was home or just around just about chocolate and just kind of what was going on. And after college, after being there for two years, getting my associate's degree, I came back to work for him for a year um, because that allowed me to pay off the massive student debt that you occur in culinary school, as everyone knows. So that was your first job after culinary school was working at the chocolate shop. Okay. That gave me a lot of freedom because I was able to pay off a lot of loans. I'm from here. So I was able to live at home. And then I went and worked out at the Ritz-Carlton because I was trying to expose myself also to as much diversity as possible for as far as how cooking is, whether it be in restaurants, whether it be in hotels, bakery, and like that. Like at school, we had a little segment inside of a bakery that was at the school. Um, While I was in college, my externship was at Nougatine at Jean-Georges which if anyone's familiar with it, it's a very high-end restaurant in Columbus Circle. 
Um, and that was working under Johnny Azzini, who at the time was arguably one of the best pastry chefs in the country, if not the world, for a lot of people. So you worked with Johnny? Yeah. I was with him just for a short, like four months. That gave me a lot of experience very quickly. And that's where I met Fabian von Haus, who owns Contra while there and now People's Wine Bar. So after being at Perfect 12 for a while, I jumped to the Carlton to be at hotels, see that side of aspect. I wasn't big into it. I didn't really care for the corporate structure. So then I kind of kept bouncing back and forth then. Um, I'd come back to the Perfect Truffle because it was a nice home base. I was able to come back and also still have creative freedom with a lot of things. But in the meantime, um, that's when Contra up in New York was opening. And I had always been kept in contact with Fabian about coming to work with him because he was someone that um, started to work with well at Nougatine when I was there. He was someone that actually helped me out a lot. He was unofficially basically a sous chef there, but he didn't actually have a title because he was technically an intern or an extern. But he was doing a lot of the R&D there and someone that was just awesome to learn from and just work with and was a great friend. So I went to Contra. We opened up in 2013 in the in the fall. And then I was there for probably about two and a half years or so before I decided I needed to get out of the city because it was just, it's kind of soul sucking. <laughs> so I came back to Maryland, worked at Perfect Truffle again for like four or five months. And then they're like, hey, we're opening a wine bar next door. Why don't you come back? And went back up there, kind of helped that at Contra a little bit more and then jumped to the wild air side, which is the wine bar. And that's also where I got to do some savory cooking and not just pastry. But the biggest thing there at both of the restaurants was everyone helped with everything, whether it be pastry, whether it be savory, plating greens, cracking oysters open on the fry station, anything really that needed to be done, you you helped with. It was a small kitchen. Do you find that there's like more crossover that way, like that maybe sweet stuff kind of creeps into the savory dishes and vice versa? Yes and no. I mean, I did I did a I did kind of all kinds of prep as far as everything went and there was times yeah that i was making little little crackers for the savory side for our amuse bouches or like the little snacks at the beginning as everyone calls them now there, i mean there's a lot of crossover now as far as like what techniques are being used i guess you could say but at the same time in these small kitchens everyone's starting to cross over and starting to mix and pastry dishes are starting to become a lot more savory like our first dish that was ever on the menu that actually got a lot of publicity for was a roasted beet dish with yogurt and a hazelnut milk chocolate janduya cremeau. It kind of went away for like a year and then it came back in a different iteration a little bit, but it was a more very savory dish. But that was also the first time I had ever been exposed to like putting so much acid in things that like, I'd be putting lemon juice in the yogurt sorbet and they'd be like, okay, now add more. Okay. Now add more. So when did you decide to leave there? I left there three years ago. Now I think it is. I left there. And one of the things was Randy always like when, I, even when I was there the first time back in 2013, he was always like, or 2011, sorry. He was like, 
so uh, when do you want to buy the business? I was like, not now. It's not not yet. Like I'm still brand new. And and he would always be like, well, when do you? How come? And it's like I just don't have. To, I need to keep going. He knew that. And but then every so often he'd be like, hey, you want to come buy the business? It's like kind of jokingly, but kind of serious. And it's like, well, how much time you got your lease left? Two years. Like great. I'll see you in two years. So when you came back to Frederick, had you already decided to purchase the chocolate shop or was that something that you got into like once you got here and got settled? We were in the works of me purchasing it because like I said, we always kind of went back and forth of like, hey, when are you going to purchase it? It's like, not yet, not yet, not yet. And I knew at that point, if I didn't get out of restaurants, it just, I was just not going to be healthy. And I'm, I was like, everyone, we went out till two o'clock in the morning and drank and partied and had fun. But the chocolate shop was a way out for me of the restaurant industry. So I had been talk, in talks with Randy and we actually had been working on me purchasing it pre-COVID and stuff just didn't work out. And then during COVID, we really sat down more. and was like, all right, what do we need to do to make this work? Because at the end of the day, Randy wanted me to also be successful. And so then last year, and actually January 15th of 2021, I was able to purchase it. But it had been in the works for about two years prior, like seriously in the works for me to purchase it. It was a crazy time to purchase it because it was like early December, I think it was. Randy comes in and he's like, hey, so we got to talk All right, about what? He's like, well, here's my lease. It ends April of 2019, I think it was, or 2020. And he's like, do you want the business? Because if not, if so, we got to extend the lease. If not, we don't. And it's like, and then it's done. So that was kind of just like, all right, we, like, we got to do it now. Because it was now or never as far as everything went for that. So you had been working for him for a number of years. So you were already comfortable with kind of like how the shop was running all the things that were going so it wasn't like you kind of came into it with no experience you would sounds like collectively put in a good number of years there yeah i mean from 2011 till now like i was there off and on constantly and i had been making recipes for a long time there was a lot of things that i wanted to do that randy wasn't quite ready to do as far as like online or shipping or like now I'm bringing in a ton of different chocolate bars from other makers, um, what a lot of people call bean to bar chocolate, like doing different frozen items in the summer and just trying to expand what I'm doing overall. But overall, day to day, I had been really running the shop for the past like two years prior. So what are some of the things you've learned in the past year since you took over? What are some surprises? <laughs> surprises I, I knew it was a lot of work and somehow i ended up working more than i already ever have <laughs> as you can probably attest to owning your own business i mean surprises i mean the amount of adaptability that you have to have there is never two days alike at this point for me i guess it's not a surprise it's just the amount like the amount you have to push yourself to constantly adapt and just keep changing constantly because the second you sit still, it's just like, well, it, it does not work anymore, especially in this environment now with COVID. Yeah. So you didn't really have the benefit of owning the business during quote unquote normal times. I mean, I'm sure so much of it is attributed to COVID. Uh, 
How much are you dealing with the same issues that other people in the restaurant industry, like uh, costs of goods going up, labor shortages? Like, are you seeing the exact same things in your business that every other food business is kind of seeing right now? A hundred percent. I mean, when I went in, I had always been trying to increase our wages every year. And like my part time, I was trying to get everyone to $15 an hour. And that was a couple of years ago. And then now it's like, crap, $15 an hour is not enough anymore. And so it's like, that was one of the hardest things. And that's a lot of people um, have had the same thing. It's just like, that have opened businesses recently, you had planned, like you had been planning this restaurant or shop or anything like that for the last two years or so at, okay, I could have the help for it this much. And then all of a sudden it's like, I need to actually increase that by 20% or 30%. It's like, where's this money coming from? But then cost of goods, part of it is myself. I've, I've changed the chocolate I'm using. So that has increased the cost in itself, but then also just the cost of cost of goods in general have gone up. But then getting goods at the moment is hard. Like cocoa powder. I can't get cocoa powder from my normal purveyor that will deliver to me on a weekly basis. So I've now started sourcing from other people that I normally had never have dealt with before. Getting things like coconut flakes, I can't find them half the time now. It's, it's just like kind of weird things that like I go to order. I'm like, crap, I can't get that today. All right. Well, uh, we just don't have this flavor for now for a bit just because you can't get certain things. And with the way my shop is, if I don't have a flavor for a bit, it's fine. Or blackberry puree, I think is like $18 a kilo now, which is like one of the more expensive purees. Uh, most of them hover around like 12 or $14 a kilo. Everything and now at this point, I'm planning like a month and a half or two months in advance to what I need to buy. Boxes are a big thing. Oh, that was a big thing. Last year during the Christmas season, the people that make all the inserts for my boxes decided to go, like they closed. So every everyone in the country uses this one essentially person or sh- uh, place to get their inserts from. That no longer existed. And so everyone's like, well, I've got boxes now, but I can't get inserts. You're talking about the little plastic things that the chocolate yeah. sit in. Mm-hmm. So those were just non-existent. So I was just trying to order any size I could and hope that I could get something, whether the cavities were a little too big or a little small, like it was just get anything you can. And then it would be like, all right, well now I can't get my lids for my boxes or I can't get bases for my boxes, but I can get lids. That was, that's the biggest thing. So now at this point, I was like this whole last year, all during the summer, I was just stockpiling boxes. Every month I was just, I was just buying a thousand dollars worth of boxes or $2,000 worth of boxes and just stockpiling so I could have enough for this Christmas season. Cause last year I ran out, I think around like Valentine's day, I think I ran out. That's such a weird place to be in this like hoarding mentality. Like, you know, whether it's us at home with toilet paper or you with thousands of dollars in boxes. So strange. Yeah. And well, and that's the thing too. It's like, and then if you want to go to China to get boxes, because if you want to do like custom orders, like I don't, I can't do custom orders right now. I just, I don't have the cash flow as much as some people. And if you want to do custom orders, you got to order through like Alibaba or try to get a hold of a manufacturer. And 
order packaging through China, but you got to order like three pallets worth. Like you got to order like 10, 15, 20,000 boxes. But they'll tell you it's going to take you like three months to get these boxes. That's a complete lie. You got It's going to take like six to eight months, maybe. Might take more. You might get lucky. You might get stuck on a shipping container in the, in the middle of a channel with a ship that's sideways and you won't get it for like a year and a half. Who knows? <laughs> that's one of the hardest things because it's just you can't just go out and just buy something. It takes a lot of time and a lot of planning. Like right now, I would love to get some different, more custom advent calendars that fit my chocolates better, but I need to start thinking about that now so I can maybe have them for Christmas next year. I never even thought about like planning that far ahead. I'm not sure I'm good with that far ahead planning. I wish I could be like, for me, I get through Christmas and it's like, okay, now onto Valentine's Day. I get through Valentine's Day and it's like, okay, now onto Easter. Okay, it's on Easter, now onto Mother's Day. At the end of the day, a lot of things can be stored, like hollow figures or just solid chocolate can be stored, or even even truffles in general. You can make them as long as you formulate them correctly. They're going to last for sixty days, ninety days, by testing the active water content in them. Or you can also package them, seal them up really well, whether it be vacuum sealing or through saran wrapping them several times. And then slowly cooling them down in a refrigerator and then putting them in the freezer. And they're going to stay good for another six months or so. Um, and you're going to be able to tell the difference as long as you freeze them properly and thaw them properly. It's just the man, manpower you just, I just don't have at the moment to be able to get that far ahead. Yeah, I didn't know you could freeze chocolates. I would have thought that they'd bloom or you'd have some issues with it. So they're going to bloom if you don't wrap them appropriately or vacuum seal them. Like all of ours, I put them in boxes. I put a desiccant packet in them to absorb any kind of extra moisture that's in there. And then you saran wrap them. And then there's no air going to change from the outside to inside. And then when you are going to thaw them, you take them out. You set them on the like you put them in the fridge first because you want to come up to temperature as slowly as possible. Because otherwise you could deal with cracking. And then you'll let them come up to room temperature for like 12 hours or so. 24 hours is better. And then you can then open them up and you won't have that blooming or condensation. The same thing like with your glasses, you go into a walk-in, you come out, you instantly get fogged. Versus a lot of times, like if you put your glasses in your pocket, they don't fog up because they kind of stay in this like nice environment. Hmm, that's a good analogy for it. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I don't make chocolates. I mean, I've tinkered a little bit at home and I'd like to get into it a little more. I guess that's a good segue. Like jumping kind of ahead what do you have for tips for people who just want to like recreationally make chocolate at home? Do you have any tips like where to start? A get good quality chocolate. The little candy melts from AC Moore are a, they're not tasty, but they also, they, they react differently than your, your good quality chocolate. Cause they take out the cocoa butter and replace it with like coconut fat and hydrogenated oils and other basically oils and fats for it. Honestly, start with just a simple ganache recipe, two parts chocolate, one part cream. And that's going to give you a nice firm ganache. You can pipe it out and then you can just hand roll it and then just toss it in some cocoa powder or powdered sugar. And that's your traditional truffle. And that's going to give you a very short shelf life. You probably need to store those in the refrigerator unless you're going to eat them right away, but it's going to give you something tasty. 
if you want to get into doing then something that has like a hard shell, do the same thing. And then you could get away with not having perfectly tempered chocolate. If you're going to hand roll, I'll, I'll say it like if you melt your chocolate, vigorously keep stirring it down to about 86 degrees, 87 degrees Fahrenheit. And then as you're rolling it in your hands, that's going to also kind of temper it. Um, as you're taking the chocolate, like the little truffle balls, dipping them in the, there in the chocolate and then hand rolling it in your hand because hand roll or rolling it or moving the chocolate creates that temper. That would be the best way to really get into it. Once you start getting into doing the molded bonbons or hand dipping them, that's when you really, really need that good temper. Can you temper in the microwave like at, like successfully at home to do that kind of thing? Like once you get in the molding? Chocolate, when you get it, it should be in temper. If, unless you got a bag that had been like melted and then you're going to have a giant block. Because when it comes to the manufacturer, it is tempered. Um, so at that point, if you were to just to slowly melt it in the microwave and keep it below 86 degrees or 80, you keep it at 86 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to be in temper. It's when you get it above like 90 degrees, 92, 94, 95 degrees, that's when it's out of temper. And that's when you're going to get that kind of chalky, brittle chocolate that is kind of gritty and just doesn't taste the same. It doesn't melt in your mouth, like nice and creamy. And I did my first hand at the cocoa bombs this winter. I know you saw some of my pictures there. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things. And you know, we went to like a market or something and the woman was selling for $10 a piece. And I, you know, I value small makers. Like I get it, but I'm like, I'm not paying $40 for four like hot cocoa bombs. I'm like, I'm going to buy a silicone mold on Amazon for 10 bucks. And I'm just going to like figure this thing out. So and with those, you could easily take the chocolate. If you're doing cocoa bombs, you could easily take the chocolate, paint them into the molds and then put them in the refrigerator or freezer and it'll set up and it, that'll make it contract. Are they going to be perfectly tempered? No, but at the same time, it's going to be melted anyway. So you're not going to taste it being a little untempered. But like, that's one of the things that people always ask me, like, how come you don't do hot cocoa bombs? Well, I don't know how people are selling them for $5 a piece. I can't compete with that with my labor cost of myself doing it slash the amount of time doing it that it takes because they do take a while to do it was a lot of work it was like a lot more work and then you watch your kids drop them in a cup and they melt in 10 seconds you're like i just spent two hours making four hot cocoa bombs <laughs> and they melted in 20 seconds like it was a fun experiment but i think those silicone molds are going to be used for other desserts and not <laughs> like maybe i'll break out the cocoa bombs once a year it's a it's a cool thing but at the same time like i can't for myself i can't justify because i can't compete with what everyone else is doing on that level, I can make a whole lot more. I can spend my time doing a lot of other things or I can make also just really good hot cocoa mix at my work for you to purchase that, yes, it's not going to have the illustrious melting of the chocolate, but it's the same thing in a way. But it's part of it is the experience for what those are like. There's someone down in Texas. She makes ones that are snowmen that are spray that are painted with cocoa butter that look like little snowmen, but they also cost, I think, $30. That makes like four cups. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. But at the same time, like you go to Starbucks and a hot cocoa costs you five, six bucks or whatever it is. So there's not a ton of difference, but 
and pricing for that, but it's it's still a lot to pay for something that ends up melting ultimately in 30 seconds. And kind of piggybacking on that, do you think about competition? I mean, you're not the only chocolate shop on the block. I mean, I guess technically on the block, but like going <laughs> up one block, there's another chocolate shop. And like, how does that work? I mean, so actually we are, we actually have a competitor on our block because Candy Kitchen's across the street from us. But I don't think of them as the same level because they're not really... I feel like you're more of a specialty chocolates and everyone asks like, how is there three chocolate shops in this, like in this, in this downtown area and how are you guys different? And so for us, I do mostly airbrushed or painted with colored cocoa butter bonbons. They're super colorful, a lot of different mold variation. Some are enrobed, but I also have a bunch of bean to bar chocolate bars also. And I'm starting to do some frozen items and every like and some other confections slowly. Candy Kitchen, they do the very kind of, I guess, old school style. They do like the hand dipped caramels, the buttercream centers. I go there for like the chocolate covered Oreos. Yeah. And then they have like they have a bunch of different like I think gummy worms and stuff and kind of the more traditional candy shop that you would see, fudge. But something I don't I have that they don't is non-dairy. I've started to do a lot more non-dairy items, and hopefully this year I'll have a lot more than just like four things. And then Zoe's, they've got a lot more bars that are like have inclusions in them. And then their truffles or bonbons are mostly enrobed. And they have just a little bit of garnish on top, whether it be a little bit of like sugar crystals or a nut or like that hand-dipped fork on top or something like that. And they have a little bit of molded bonbons, but they're not as like they're not as colorful and vibrant as ours. So it's a very different look to it all. I go over there maybe once a year just to kind of see what they're doing, and because it is always good to taste everything. And they're they're great chocolates, but it's not as they're not as vibrant. Yeah, yours are definitely what I think of as like when I want to give a gift to someone. You know, I love getting a box of four and bringing. It to customers because it is so eye popping first and foremost. Like you know, they have such a awesome sheen to them and the nice colors on them, uh, some fun different kind of shaping on them, and I think it looks like a super professional, like fancy chocolate. Thank you. So and that's that's actually to go into that like the sheen of it. Like that's like one of the number one questions everyone asks. Like, a can you eat the whole thing? B why do they look so shiny and chocolate? As I tell everyone. If you handle it properly, naturally it is shiny. It's not necessarily a bad piece of chocolate if it's not shiny, because there's several other factors with that for why it wouldn't be. But it's naturally chocolate should be shiny. People actually ask you if you can eat the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> um, a lot of people think like the tops of like my enrobed ones that I do um, the different designs on with transfer sheets. They think it's like a paper sheet, like you would see on like a cake, like the rice paper sheet. Cause like we get ones that have different logos on it for a company, or I get ones with like flowers on it or hearts. Like my number one fun thing to tell people is that I sit there with a little tiny paintbrush and paint every single little heart on the passion fruit one. And some people are like, no way. Are you serious? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I got like a whole team of people that just sit there and paint little hearts on everything. And like, and it's just really fun to see that reaction. It's like a nail salon. You're all sitting there with like little brushes. <laughs> exactly. And there are people that paint 
like little cherries on top of all their bonbons or faces or like that. Personally, I don't know how they can have the cost effective, like have that as cost effective way of doing that because that's a lot of work. Not every business is a profitable business, which is something uh, you learn every day, right? Yeah. But also, I'm also not a great painter either. Like I can airbrush, I can paint a little bit, but I cannot sit there and paint these really beautiful looking cherries or flowers on stuff. I just, I just don't have the artistic ability as far as painting like that. My favorite is the Old Bay Caramel. Is that one that's going to stick around? That will be around always in the summer. Um, this year, I made I made a pretty large run of it. And then that was kind of, once that run was done, that was gone for the season. But that one will always be around. It's a Maryland staple. It's one of those things where it's like, why don't, like where's the Old Bay? Like It's Maryland. So you kind of have to have something if you're in Maryland with Old Bay. It's delicious. That's such an interesting combo. It's like the Old Bay and the caramel. It just works. Well, that one also, it's a weird thing because you taste Old Bay differently than you would if you eat it on like seafood or on chips or fries and like that. Like for me, it kind of breaks down what's in Old Bay on kind of on a, you, you taste, you taste a little bit of that pepperiness. You taste that celery salt in it or the celery seed. You taste that little bit of mustard. Um, you kind of, it kind of, breaks it down to where you can almost taste each flavor in it, which I think is kind of cool. I always want to get the interesting things. Like that's, you know, I never like getting the thing that everyone has. So it's like, what is the most unique, special thing? And that's definitely one of those ones. That's one though, where I get people go, vanilla, that's just boring. Why would I, why would I get vanilla? And that's one that always sticks to the nail for me um, because vanilla for me isn't, just a flavor enhancer, which is it's used for most things. Most times it's like, oh, just throw a little bit of vanilla in that dessert or this dish, or it's an enhancer. It's in everything. But vanilla is one of the most complex, complex flavors that you could have if you have good vanilla and also if you use a proper amount. So like right now, I've got vanilla beans from Colombia, these wild vanilla beans that I got from someone that i uh, met through some cooks when I was up in New York and they are from the Pacific coast of Colombia. Um, I've got some from the North and some from the South, but they are really floral. They kind of have like a like caramelly, like toasted marshmallow flavor to them. And just really unique. And they've become one of my favorite vanillas. Unfortunately, they're really hard to get because this village harvests about 40 kilos a year and then only 10 kilos of that are actually of like really good quality. But then like I've got some Ugandan vanilla. I have had in the past some from Papua New Guinea, Ecuadorian, and they all have very unique flavors to them. And one of the things I really want to do is create this kind of tasting of vanillas of using also like some extracts or using some paste, using uh, pandan. I don't know if you're familiar with Pandan a lot, yeah. which is kind of like the Southeast Asian vanilla almost, but it's a green plant, a green leafy plant. I think you might've sold me because like I would literally never come in and choose vanilla as the flavor of like anything in your shop. And I totally see what you're saying. I just like, I don't think I would do it, but you know, I bought vanilla beans for the first time in my life, like last year. And it was amazing how much it changed a dessert 
like where it really stands out. Like I do a pot de creme and it was always, <laughs> and it's a, uh, like a buttermilk one. And it always, I used vanilla extract, sometimes vanilla paste. And like the first time I made it where I steeped vanilla beans in there, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I should have been doing this all the time. And it was really a totally different dish. And the thing is too, it's like, yes, they're expensive, but at the same time, they have, you can you can actually get multiple uses out of a vanilla bean after I scrape them all, which you get a lot of flavor from just the seeds, but then you steep the pods also, and then I rinse them after I dry them out, and then I put them in sugar, and then after I get a bunch of them, I'll grind them. I just use the vanilla sugar for personal use at home at that point, and so when I'm making cookies, I just use that vanilla sugar then for my cookies or cakes or anything like that instead of having to use additional vanilla extract or anything like that. Yeah, I think I saw Stella Parks is a big fan of that. And I think it's like a footnote in every like serious eats recipe she did where you use vanilla beans. So I picked up on that a couple of years ago. Because they are expensive. I mean, these last ones I got were like 340 a pound, which is on the high end for vanilla beans. Um, a lot of them are like 200 or so a pound, 220 a pound, but they're still expensive regardless. Yeah. No, that's crazy. Especially when you like, I look at some of these recipes, I got um, the cocktail book zero, which is like the no alcohol book Mm -hmm. um, from the Alinea group. And so many of their things are like, you're going to make an alcohol free rum. And it's like, put seven vanilla beans in there. And you're like, wow, this is going to cost like $400 to make a bottle of non-alcoholic rum. Well, to make vanilla extract, I want to say for a gallon you're supposed to use like two pounds of vanilla beans or a pound of vanilla beans. Like it's, it's an, it's a really absurd amount when you look at how much it is, but you make really like, I've got a bottle of vodka right now that I made vanilla extract with from some Mexican vanilla beans. Cause I wasn't completely happy with how they were as far as in just in baking use, just using them straight. So I just made a crap ton of vanilla extract with them and it's delicious, but I've also put in there probably now a half pound of vanilla beans for 750 milliliters of extra or of uh, vodka which is a lot well i will definitely be by the shop and check out some of the vanilla offerings you have there now you've got me thinking about that um what are some of your favorite resources i always like to ask people like it could either be for the work or like your off time like what are you doing are you reading cookbooks are you like are there tools apps things you love Apps, unfortunately, Instagram and Facebook has become one of the best things. I follow numerous different people. Like, as far as the people I follow right now closely to get ideas from or just ask questions, is Kali Junstick out of Sweden. He just made a he just made an awesome chocolate course that I've now I purchased. I haven't hot cut and threw it all away, but then. Katie Bonzer, she posts stuff every day regarding baking and her husband, just any question wise or just science based stuff. Inspiration wise, I follow someone out of Colorado called Colorado Cocoa Pod, where Chris Harvey also posts a lot of stuff. And some of it's not even like, like there's a lot of people that try to like ask questions like, hey, can I get a recipe? If people just hand you recipes, you never actually learn. A lot of times, if you just read comments from people, or read their captions, or just honestly just watch videos and just pay closely close attention to stuff. Sometimes you pick up on things. I hate to say it. Sometimes you pick up on the recipes that are sitting on their 
on their board next to them and you can read it actually if you pause the video or their notes sometimes but it's like it's very helpful information even if you don't have a recipe just being to see notes from people sometimes is so helpful book wise one of the best ones still is not pro chef but it's the cia baking cookbook i know what you're i think it's called like baking and pastry fundamentals or something like that yeah it's one of the best just all around books i still reference peter gruling's book sometimes as far as for chocolate work um because his goes into good detail but not like complicated detail harold mcgee's on food and cooking is if you can actually read it great but more or less it's just a resource to look at and most culinary professionals know know about it have a book copy of it usually it's just also just reaching out to people if you have a question sometimes most chefs will answer questions for you or other chocolatiers or cooks or anything will answer questions if you have stuff as long as you're not like asking them to strip like hey i want that recipe what, what is it i was trying to smoke some white chocolate one time and i had some challenges and francisco magoya was like fantastic about like talking to me just via instagram dms about it like i sent him some pictures i talked him through the process and he like gave me some adjustments and i was like super honored that he like took the time to just like say sure here's what i would do he is he was an awesome teacher i I was really fortunate to actually be in his class at school before he left CA. he was a fantastic teacher and just stuff that he was doing i wish i had gotten some of his chocolate when he had hudson chocolate open i got some i had some sent to my house and like because he was doing more like conceptual stuff which he still is um i don't know if you saw the easter bunnies last year that he did that were made out of the hundred percent cocoa berry chocolate made with like the entire fruit i don't think i saw that he makes a lot of his own molds he also has a lot of resources for that at this point but like he made or he had this sculpture a sculptus make this easter bunny mold like that they look like kind of like evil rabbits i'd say almost like you would see in monty python i know what you're talking about i ha- i did <laughs> see this yes and then he ended up auctioning it off but he made these really cool just chocolate bunnies out of the 100% chocolate that was from Cocoa Berry. But then like he just makes some really cool just one-off kind of molds that like whether it be pistachios or entremets that are not in molds that are just free form. And he is just a really good like inspirational person too as far as just watching what it is. But yeah, he does answer a lot of questions. At the beginning of the pandemic, he actually on his blog, he posted, hey, I can't give everyone money that I know like to help them out during COVID. But what I can do is tell them exactly how I used to ship chocolates that I saw that was a great thing to do. Like He found these air mailers from, I think it's France. I have to find it on my bookmarks. But they you inflate them yourself because they, they come flat to you. You can inflate them with air or he used to inflate them with argon gas during the summer because it has a natural property to insulate. And then that's how he was shipping his stuff. And it was just like using a styrofoam cooler, but it was filled with argon gas, which is actually a, was better, I guess, than using styrofoam because also you didn't have to have these the styrofoam coolers everywhere. There's so many great people, and those are the people I gravitate to online, like the ones who want to be part of like a culinary community and share advice and tips and stuff. And, you know, it's so different than the old school of like, here's all my secret recipes, and I'm not going to tell anyone about anything because you're my competitor. When I was at school, 
adults that went to 11 Madison Park for their externship were not allowed to take photos for their externship manuals or take recipes. Like they gave them like a recipe they could use for that externship manual. Like it was like top secret that like you couldn't take anything out of there. So that was really weird as far as And like, then they put out a bunch of cookbooks. So like, what's the point? Yeah. But then like, like, I mean, I've got like, I've got recipes from L2O back, back when it was open in Chicago. Like I've got recipes from a lot of random places that are just like, where did this come from? Or like, but also it's like, when am I going to ever actually use this? Cause it's just like, some of them are just super complicated processes. And I guess that kind of goes with like, people are like, well, why does your product cost so much? And it's like, well, it takes me a lot of time. It's like, I've given people recipes that people have asked for. Like we used to make a pistachio uh, truffle that a lot of people love. Unfortunately, it now costs like just to make it with the, just to buy the ingredients for it's like $1.50, per truffle to make it. So then I got to charge like $5 for it because of all the labor and everything that goes into it. And someone came in and was like, can I have the recipe for it? It's like, sure, here's the recipe. But it's like the chances are someone actually makes it is very slim because the pistachio paste itself costs like $100 for a can. Pistachios cost now like $70 a pound. Chocolate costs anywhere from $4 a pound for the cheap stuff, for the good quality cheap stuff, to $20 a pound for the expensive good stuff. So it's like... It's a lot just to sometimes buy everything for everything. And that's without having the knowledge to actually execute at a good level. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite grocery store chocolate if you were making like a chocolate chip cookie or something? Like, is there a brand? And the sub question is like, what are your thoughts on percentages of cocoa as far as like maybe a favorite? Like you want to make <laughs> some really baller chocolate chip cookies and you're going to go to the grocery store and buy chocolate. What are you going to buy? I mean, I think the only thing that's really available is like Toll House, Hershey's, and Giardelli. So you kind of have to go to Giardelli at that point because that's like, I guess, the highest quality that you're going to really find. Like if you go to like Whole Foods, you can usually find like Calibo, maybe Varona or Cocoa Berry, I think, usually at Whole Foods. But that's usually like slimmer to none. But I guess that's why the internet's so great now because you can get the more expensive, good quality chocolates or like... People like I start. I've started selling now, like my chocolate that I actually make all the chocolates with in bulk size now, kind of in my store. Sometimes, like you're better off almost going to a baker and like, "Hey, can I buy chocolate from you?" Just because it does make a huge difference. Percentages of cocoa—they're all a sham that the media and chocolate companies have brainwashed into people that they actually mean stuff. The only thing that the percentage of cocoa can really tell you is like almost like if it's dark chocolate really the sugar content of the chocolate like a 70 percent dark chocolate is going to have 30 percent sugar in it roughly but that's really the only thing it's going to really be to tell you how sweet it is i guess you could say because the other 70 percent can be anything that a cocoa bean comprises of so basically cocoa powder cocoa butter or them combined together as cocoa mass. So essentially, I could take an entire block of cocoa butter and hand it to you and say, this is 100% cacao, because it is. It's just all cocoa butter, which you don't want to eat. So, and that's one of the things I do. I have a chocolate tasting class. I, I pull out these jars that have different amounts in it and kind of show people 
this is cocoa. This is dark chocolate. This is dark chocolate with just some extra cocoa butter in it, white chocolate. So it's hard to say what the percentage that's best is. Yes, if you get an 85% or 100%, yes, it's inherently going to be more dark slash maybe a little bitterness to it, a little like tannicness to it, but not, it's not going to be bad if it's good chocolate. But then if you get a 70%, like it's very so much as far as the flavor profiles, the bean types, like certain beans have less tannins than others, just same as like how coffee or grapes for wine are. They all are very, very different. So it's hard to say like inherently what's better or worse than... It's all personal preference. Yeah. I mean, yes. Like if like so many people come in, they're like, I hate dark chocolate. Well, what kind of dark chocolate have you had before? I've had Hershey's special dark. Well, that tastes like you're eating cocoa powder because it kind of, that's what it tastes like. It just, because they're not using super high quality beans. They're basically just refining them so much that they have no flavor to them versus some of the bars I have. There's 77% that I have that taste like they're like 60%, if that means anything really that don't have that tannicness, that don't have that bitterness, that don't have that harshness, but they have this nice sweetness and just nice nuttiness or fruitiness to them. Yeah, just like everything, there's, I think, more info than the general consumer is aware of, like what you see uh, in the chocolate world compared to like what's really going on. There is an amazing amount still that, I mean, ethically that needs to be worked on and every company says they're ethically sourcing sustainable. And then every couple of years, something comes out like, hey, they actually weren't as ethical as they say they were. And it's like, when are we getting to this point when it's going to be? But that's also a reason why you're seeing a big push now into South America versus being in Africa. Is child labor one of the big issues with the chocolate? That was a big thing. And it's an ever ongoing thing unfortunately. And just also just pricing wise, chocolate should not be as cheap as it is. Um, It used to be a luxury. It used to be for the kings and queens and royalty. And then when Hershey started developing chocolate to be for the masses at five cents a candy bar back in the 20s or 30s, whenever it was started, like it became this, hey, we can have a chocolate bar every day for, for a snack but it's, it shouldn't be that cheap because it, from the time that beans are grown to the time I actually get it to work with is about a year. I didn't realize it took that long. Well, between all the fermenting and roast, fermenting, drying, getting it to whoever's going to be roasting it, grinding it. And also because then they already usually have a stockpile of beans already that they have to have in use already. And so it just, it does take a, a good bit of time. And then even once I get it, I usually already have a backlog of chocolate that I need to get through. But at this point, yeah, we have to buy ahead of time. So, Well, I just have a couple of questions for you before we get out of here today. If you were any flavor in your shop, what flavor would you be? What? (laughs) If you had to identify as one of your chocolates, which one would it be? I think I always got to stick with one of my favorites is five spice hazelnut. It's a Chinese five spice, which it's not spicy at all. It's like, I explain to always everyone as like Asian apple pie spice almost, because most people don't know what it is half the time, but it's this kind of like 
it's this flavor profile that just kind of keeps expanding on itself. The more you taste it, the more you eat it, but it's a really nice sweeter chocolate because it's made with milk chocolate. And then you get this little bit of nuttiness from the hazelnuts. And it's just kind of this complex flavor, but that keeps kind of just opening up and changing as you eat it. Do you think Chinese five spice would be good in hot cocoa? Always. Yes. I've never done that, but now that you say that, and Chinese fried spice is one of those ones that's like amazing when it's fresh and not good when it's like old and musty. Like if you have like an old container of it, it has like a weird taste. That's one of those ones that I feel changes the most when it's like old. So I go to like common market and just buy, you know, a couple tablespoons at a time when I need some like really fresh, organic, good stuff. It's all like, I actually just reordered some because mine actually just went kind of off. But it's also, it depends on who makes it. Like you can either make it yourself or depends on who makes it. Depends on how it tastes. Some people put more fennel in there. Some people put more Szechuan peppercorn. Some people put more clove in theirs. So it really changes greatly on who you get yours from. I just, I don't remember which cookbook it is, but they had a recipe for like, they call it like, was it Chinese seven or like Chinese nine spice? It was like basically not just (laughs) five, but they had like bumped it up to like seven or nine or something like that. I'm still probably not going to make it. Like, I don't know. I see all those things. I'm like, yeah, one of these days I'm going to buy all the individual spices and grind them. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Never. <laughs> well, do you have anything to leave our listeners with before we get out of here today? Eat more chocolate. <laughs> Eat more better chocolate. Eat more better chocolate and just some more support small small businesses wherever you are, regardless of what it is. We're all not Amazon. We all can't give free shipping. Heard. Yes, I think our community especially has been really great. Like I've seen the city of Frederick, people really kind of rallying behind small businesses. I think it's great. I hope other people are seeing that in their communities. I I hope so. Like as small businesses this year, we saw more people on like Black Friday time than ever before. And I drove past Walmart at like seven in the morning that day and their parking lot was like, a quarter full only. I was like, wow, what is going on? This is weird. But yeah, I mean, like, it's at the end of the day, it's wonderful to see people support small businesses. And, and like, it's not bad to support large businesses also, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to make it and it's always appreciated. That's what's kept my business going, especially this past year and a half. So again, I'm super appreciative to all of the people supporting small businesses. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I love talking to you. Thanks for having me. It was a wonderful time. I will be by to get some chocolate, I'm sure, before too long. And in the the meantime, uh, keep doing what you're doing because I think it's working. And to all of our listeners, thanks. This has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.